0: Welcome to Pursuing Quality Long-Term Care, an educational podcast for individuals needing long-term care and their families. In this episode, we are sharing with you a discussion that was held on Facebook Live around residents' rights in nursing homes. Lori Smitenka, Consumer Voices Executive Director, and Jocelyn Bogdan, Program and Policy Specialist at Consumer Voice, talk about what impact COVID-19 has had on residents and their exercising of rights. They also provide an overview of residents' rights that exist in federal law. To view the materials mentioned in this presentation, visit theconsumervoice.org slash pursuing quality.
1: Hi, good afternoon, everyone. I'm Lori Smitenka. I'm the executive director of the National Consumer Voice for Quality Long-Term Care. We're thrilled to have you with us this afternoon. We're going to be talking about residents' rights. And hi, Jocelyn. Hi. Jocelyn Bogdan is a program and policy specialist with us at the Consumer Voice, and it is Residence Rights Month. It's uh, the time every year during the month of October when we at the Consumer Voice designate this month. As Residents' Rights Month, it's an opportunity for us to all honor residents living in all long-term care facilities. It's also an opportunity for us to focus on and reinforce our commitment to recognizing the value of each resident and treating them with dignity and respect. Our theme for Residents' Rights Month this year is Reclaiming My Rights, My Home, My Life, which really was chosen to acknowledge the impact of the past year on residents. And highlights the need for us really to focus again on residents' rights and that they be recognized, recovered, and reasserted. And so we thought it really timely to take some time today to review um, a whole range of rights, um, make sure that folks were aware of what their rights are. Um, and that's why we wanted to do the Facebook Live. So we're really thrilled that you could join us today. We know that since the COVID crisis began, it's really felt in many ways like the world has turned upside down and that everything's been different. On the one hand, for many of you, numerous aspects of nursing home life has changed since the crisis began. But at at the same time, we have to recognize that there are many things that have not changed. And that includes the rights and protections that you are entitled to as a resident of a long-term care facility. While some of the waivers and guidance that had been issued by state and federal governments, excuse me, since the start of the pandemic, did affect some rights, um, they were very limited, and the vast majority of rights for residents are still very largely intact and in effect. And so again, that's why we really felt it was important to review them again um, so that you really were aware of what your rights are, what you should be expecting um, and advocating for in the long-term care facilities. I just wanna point out that we will be talking about and covering a number of rights that seem particularly pertinent right now. Um, As we talk about rights, we're focused on what's um, required for people in the Nursing Home Reform Act. So, they apply to residents of nursing homes. We know we get the question a lot do these rights apply to assisted living facilities and assisted living residents? And when you look at assisted living, um, you need to look at state requirements, state rules, and state rights. There aren't federal rights that apply um, to assisted living right now. So, you have to look at what your state rules and rights are. Many of them um, have. Uh, do include several of the rights that we're talking about today. Um, Some of them do mirror um, some of the rights that people in nursing homes have, um, but really we're taking the rights from the Nursing Home Reform Act and we'll be covering those. Um, So to get us started today as we talk about this, we're going to first touch on the results of two surveys that we had done earlier in the year where we were asking for feedback from residents and family members um, asking what their experiences were currently in their nursing homes and their long-term care facilities, what they were, ex- what they were seeing when they went back in to visit. Um, and we're, we wanted to start here because we think it really sets the stage for talking about rights and expectations, and also kind of thinking about how we need to be advocating for ourselves and each other. So I'm going to turn it over to Jocelyn for um, a few minutes, and she's going to talk about a resident survey that we had done earlier in the year. Jocelyn. Jocelyn.
2: Thanks, Lori. Um, So as Lori said, in May and June of this year, Consumer Voice surveyed residents, asking them what life was like in their facility 15 months after the start of the pandemic. At that point, it was before Delta, huge amounts of residents were vaccinated, and I think we were all seeing a light at the end of the tunnel. While the family survey that Lori's gonna talk about in a minute focused on the devastating impact that this pandemic has had on residents, our resident survey wanted to ask residents themselves what their lives looked like, What did they have to say about visitation and their quality of life inside their facilities? We emphasize visitation a lot and we do plan to discuss it later today. But as many of you know, there are residents who don't have visitors and with families, ombudsmen, surveyors, and others shut out of facilities for so much of the pandemic, residents are the only ones who could discuss what the experience had been like inside their facilities, what their day-to-day lives looked like. So our survey went beyond visitation to ask what else was happening, Were they getting outside? Were they eating meals together? Were they engaged in activities? Were they visiting with their friends in the facility? Quality of life questions. We had over 100 residents reply to the survey, which was fabulous. These were residents who either had access to technology on their own or a staff member, ombudsman, or family member who was able to work with them to complete the survey. So in other words, these were the best situated residents, not the ones who had experienced the biggest declines during the pandemic. The majority of them, 85%, reported that they could have indoor visits with family and friends, but three-quarters of them had these visits limited in length and half of them had them limited in frequency. Several made comments that visitation only occurred during working hours, it was hard for their families to come, or that the visits were very limited and restricted, 20 minutes long, 30 minutes long. Most residents were unable to go outside when they wanted as often as they wanted. And 15% were unable to ever go outside. And remember, this is 15 months into the pandemic and 15% of residents were never going outside for fresh air. They cited reasons like there wasn't enough staff and they were only allowed outside chaperoned. At the same time, a full 40% of residents were not able to eat any of their meals in the dining room. This was again in June. 15 months into the pandemic, 40% were still eating alone in their rooms. And just because I think it's really important to understand this, according to the CMS guidance, communal dining, group activities, all of this was permitted. And in June, it had been permitted for months, but it still wasn't happening for many, many residents. One third of residents said there were no group activities in their facilities at all. One resident said, my facility is no group activities and we're just supposed to stay in our rooms. In terms of spending time with other residents, 35% of the residents surveyed said they were not allowed to spend any time with other residents. They could not go down the hall and visit their friends. And importantly, when we asked, 60% of residents said they were not receiving the care they needed when they needed it. And again, it's important to remember that this was a survey conducted in May and early June. This is when things were looking a bit better than they've been over the past few months. And at that time, there were so many residents who were still isolated in their rooms without communal dining, the ability to go outside when they wanted, group activities, or even the ability to see friends in their facility over a year into the pandemic. And with Delta, we have no reason to believe that things suddenly got better this summer. We're obviously planning to talk a lot about rights today, as Laurie mentioned. And just to make it clear at the outset, since it is Residents' Rights Month, Residents have the right to the highest attainable quality of life. They have the right to see their friends and dine together and go outside and breathe fresh air. And we're going to talk about what all of this looks like in terms of the regulations. But we want to be clear that while there is absolutely an understandable public health risk at the outset of the pandemic, and there were choices that were made quickly to minimize that risk, the fact that it is now October of 2021, and we know there are residents who are still experiencing isolation like this is wrong. And there are absolutely rights you can and should be asserting. I also want to mention briefly that throughout our survey, many, many residents cited staffing reasons as the reasons they couldn't do these things. There was no one to take them outside, no one to monitor activities or to help them visit with their friends. Staffing is a huge priority for consumer voice as many of you know, and we're advocating right now for new staffing provisions in the current reconciliation bill in Congress. Staffing is something we're going to continue to advocate for, but staffing should never be a reason to deny residents their rights. Back in March when we were, and we were We mentioned in a webinar with CMS that some residents and families were citing staffing back then as a reason for the lack of visitation. CMS's response was fast and clear. It was unacceptable that staffing be a reason that visitation was not occurring and families and residents should file complaints with their state survey agency if there's inadequate staff. This remains true today. And so I, you know, I just wanted to mention that at the outset, you can find our complete reports on our website. And with that, I'm going to turn things over to Lori to talk about what we heard from families.
1: Thanks so much, Jocelyn. Um, The surveys that we did, they were informal surveys, and um, the survey that we did with family members was really the second survey of family members that we did. The first was towards the end of 2020, asking what they were seeing for the first time when they went back into facilities after not having seen their loved ones in six to eight months. Um, And that survey, which also is on our website, really talked about some very serious and troubling conditions um, of decline that residents were experiencing, physical, mental, and psychosocial decline. In the second survey that we did, um, at the same time we did the resident survey that Jocelyn just talked about, it was designed to hear about family member experiences with visitation policies that were being implemented at the time, but also to get an update on the condition of their family members when they would go in and see them. Um, Like residents were reporting, most families were reporting that they were able to have visits, um, but there were wide variations in the visitation policies and the practices that were being put into place by facilities across the country for many Um, Many family members faced what we are calling arbitrary barriers um, to visitation, including significant limitations on the time and frequency of visits. For example, um, visits only being offered on weekdays or during daytime hours, which really is um, a time when many family members are not able to visit due to work or other commitments. Um, So that was really problematic um, because uh, facilities were supposed to be providing as much visitation as possible for the residents. Many of the family members also reported that they did continue to see decline in the conditions of their loved ones, physical, mental, and psychosocial. Extreme staffing shortages like Jocelyn talked about continued to have a huge impact on resident care. This is something we've been talking about and fighting and advocating for for decades, um, the the staffing shortages that exist in long-term care facilities. And we know that not only the short staffing Um, but the isolation of people have real negative effects on both quality of care and quality of life research and reports talk about the negative effects of isolation on on individuals, not just in long-term care facilities, but generally there's been a lot of research about the negative effects of isolation on people wherever they live. Um, And so the experience of the residents that we were hearing about from the residents and their family members has been validating the serious negative effects of that isolation on the physical and psychosocial well-being. Many of the family members talked about um, physical decline residents being unable to walk when they had been previously able to walk or developing pressure sores or losing tremendous amounts of weight, also losing the ability to communicate, to verbally speak because they had not been spoken to in so long, or um, the s- symptoms of dementia having um, having increased significantly over the time frame. So... Um, Issues related to rights and quality care and quality of life, they're all tied together. And we wanted to really talk about um, these things that we were seeing in the surveys to kick off the talk about residence rights because they are so tied together and they're so integral to each other. And by talking about rights and advocating for residence rights, we also are advocating for quality of care and quality of life for individuals. So let's go now and we'll start talking about um, a range of the rights that we um, are that residents are entitled to through the Nursing Home Reform Act. Um, And we'll go through those. Jocelyn and I are gonna talk about a whole range of them. We're gonna go back and forth um, with them. And uh, we'll do that for the rest of the, the time today that we're talking. So one of the most important and overarching rights is that each resident has the right to receive care and services to obtain his or her highest level of well-being. So what does this mean? It means that the nursing home is required to provide the care, treatment, and services necessary for the resident to reach their highest level of physical, mental, and psychosocial well-being or to maintain their current level of well-being. They shouldn't get worse or decline unless they have a medical condition that's progressing or they refuse treatment. So, for example, I mentioned residents were losing their ability to walk just a minute ago. If a resident comes into a nursing home and they are able to walk on their own or if they're continent, for example, when they entered the facility, they should maintain that ability unless the decline was unavoidable because of a medical condition. Something happened where they're not able to do those things anymore. But it shouldn't be because they're not getting the care and services that they need and deserve. This is really about individualized person-centered care for each resident. It's not a one-size-fits-all situation. Each resident is entitled to receive the care and services that they specifically need in order to maintain or to improve in their condition. And it really does affect both the quality of care and quality of life for each individual. One of the important parts of the Nursing Home Reform Act, as I've tried to emphasize, is this does apply to each resident. It's not that some residents or just generally residents in the facility are doing okay. Each resident is entitled to person centered care and individualized services. One of the best ways to get to that is through the care care planning process. And Jocelyn is going to talk about that.
2: Thanks, Lori. Um, So as Lori just said, one way to ensure that residents receive the highest level of care is through care planning. A care plan is a strategy for how the staff is going to help ensure that the residents' needs are met. Residents have the right to participate in the development and implementation of a person centered plan of care that focuses on their individual needs. They have the right to participate in their own assessment and make decisions about their care, both now and in the future. And residents have the right to request care planning meetings if they feel they need them. And so in practice, this means residents have the right to make choices about their care, their services, their daily schedule, and their life in the facility, and to be involved in their care planning meeting. That includes their meals, their activities, therapies, and their personal schedule, in addition to medical, nursing care, and emotional needs. On the medical side, a few things that go along with this are the right to receive adequate and appropriate care, to be informed of all changes in their medical condition, to refuse medication and treatment, and to refuse chemical and physical restraints, which we're going to talk about a little bit more in a few minutes. With COVID, the need for this individualized care has increased. It's really important that residents and their families assert this right and ask for a care planning conference if needed. It's a time and place to bring up problems, ask questions, and really ensure that residents are able to live the best life possible in their nursing homes. And there are a few ways that this is really important right now. One is with regards to visitation. And we're gonna talk a little bit more about this later, but something that continues to be true about visitation, even though it has been limited by CMS guidance, is that visitation needs to be person-centered based on each resident's individual needs. So if you have a loved one who needs more visitation than they're receiving, then you should absolutely ask for a care planning meeting to discuss this, to try to get visitation written directly into their care plan. One type of visitation that's been focused on a lot during the pandemic is compassionate care visitation. And again, we'll talk a little bit more about that later, but for now, it's important to know that this is absolutely something a resident can request in a care planning meeting. They can have those visits written in. And another way this is really important right now, thinking back to the surveys we were just talking about, is again, in terms of their meals and activities and personal schedule, all the staff should be involved in care planning. Nursing assistants, nurses, doctors, social workers, therapists, and dieticians and activity staff. Residents can use these meetings to discuss their interests, the meals they wanna be eating, and the activities they wanna participate in. Again, after the past 19 months, ensuring that residents have the ability to participate in these meetings is crucial. And with that, I'm gonna switch it back over to Lori to talk about the right to be free from abuse and neglect.
1: Thanks, Jocelyn. So um, as Jocelyn mentioned, one of the other rights that the Nursing Home Reform Act provides to residents is the the right to be free from abuse, neglect, exploitation, and misappropriation of property. There are a number of requirements that facilities um, have to meet in order to help protect residents from that. They have to actively work to protect residents from abuse and neglect and misappropriation of property. So each facility is required to have policies and procedures that prohibit and prevent these, these things from occurring. The staff that they hire have to be screened prior to hiring, and even though right now um, there aren't widespread federal criminal background checks that are required, most states require background checks, and there are provisions in federal law that are moving us towards a federal um, criminal background check system, but also that require a facility to not hire um, someone who has a history of abusing or neglecting an individual, exploiting them, or misappropriating their property as evidenced by a guilty finding in court, for example, or a finding entered into a state nurse aid registry or a disciplinary action that might be in effect against a professional license. All staff are required to be trained on how to prevent abuse and and to report abuse also and that's something that should be ongoing it's not something that should happen just initially when a staff person is trained but that should be ongoing training that they receive if abuse is suspected in a long-term care facility there are requirements for reporting that suspected abuse to proper authorities and the facility is also required to investigate internally what happened and to try to come to some sort of um, finding as to exactly what happened and whether the abuse um, actually did occur. While there is an investigation going on, the facility is also required to work to prevent any further abuse from happening to that individual. So if there is abuse that's suspected, um, the facility needs to take active steps to try to protect the resident from any future abuse or any ongoing abuse so that that person does not continue to be at risk any results of an investigation have to also be reported to proper authorities and corrective action has to be taken if the abuse is verified so there would be an internal investigation of abuse as well as an external investigation of abuse by whoever the actual abuse investigator is within the state for nursing homes in a lot of states it's the survey agency for example in some states it's adult protective services so there would be other investigations that are occurring and if it's a criminal concern, um, the police um, might need to get involved. With respect to misappropriation of resident property, which includes stealing resident personal funds and their possessions, facilities can't require residents to sign a waiver saying that the facility is not responsible for lost property. Instead, the facility has a duty to exercise reasonable care to protect the resident's property from loss or from theft. They can't just say there's nothing that we can do about it. They have to actively work to take reasonable care to protect the resident's property. So as we think about restraints, one of the areas um, under the section, or one of the areas under abuse, uh, freedom from abuse and neglect that's in the rules is also to be free from the use of physical and chemical restraints. And Jocelyn's gonna talk about the use of chemical restraints at this point.
2: Thanks, Lori. Yes, so all residents, as Lori just said, have the right to be free from physical and chemical restraints. And we really wanna emphasize the right to be free from chemical restraints today, because while it's obviously always very important, it has taken on increased importance during the pandemic. Residents have the right, as we have said, to quality, person-centered, individualized care and the right to make their own choices and their own treatment decisions. Residents have the right to say no to medication. To me, I think that's the most important takeaway from this. Facilities must obtain informed, competent voluntary consent for all treatment. Residents have the right to know the purpose to their treatment, the alternatives to their treatment, and whether or not the assumed benefits outweigh the risks before they agree to any treatment. We know there are medications, antipsychotic drugs, that are sometimes prescribed not to treat a medical diagnosis, but instead they're given to residents off-label to control the resident's actions or for the convenience of staff. When this happens, it's considered a chemical restraint and these drugs pose risks, particularly for residents with dementia. During the pandemic, we know there has been an increase in antipsychotic drugs being prescribed, which is very unfortunate, but sadly it's not terribly surprising. Facilities were short-staffed and families haven't been able to come inside and help care for their loved ones or to monitor their treatment. We also know that in addition to prescribing these drugs off-label, A recent analysis of Medicare data found a 70% increase in the number of nursing home residents diagnosed with schizophrenia. One in nine nursing home residents has received this diagnosis as opposed to one in 150 in the general population. Now schizophrenia is a condition that is almost always diagnosed in your late teens or your early twenties. You do not develop schizophrenia at 85. That said, if a resident has schizophrenia, then it would make sense for them to be prescribed certain antipsychotics. So this is a way for the facility to prescribe the medication in a way that's now not off-label, but instead it is for a specific diagnosis. But residents are not suddenly becoming schizophrenic when they enter their facilities or when their facilities lock locked down at the start of the pandemic. And I think the number of residents who somehow developed schizophrenia in April, May, and June of last year was around 7,000. So facilities are diagnosing residents with schizophrenia just so they can continue to prescribe these drugs. And we have heard from family members who only hear afterwards that their loved one's medications have changed or that their loved one has been put on a new medication and they're not even aware of it. So if you have a family member or a loved one who's struggling and a facility has come to you wanting to prescribe off-label medication, we just wanna make it clear that there are questions you can and should ask and suggestions you should raise to the facility. You can ask the facility, you have the right to ask them why the drug was ordered and what prompted it. You can ask what else might be causing these symptoms and absolutely ask if the medication is specifically for this cause or for these symptoms? And just to be clear, these are all questions that if you're a resident listening, you should be asking as well. I don't wanna just limit it to family members. Um, And you should ask about your non-drug options. If they list behavioral symptoms as a reason, then you should emphasize that the facility needs to identify and address the cause of those behavioral symptoms. If you're a resident or if you have a loved one who is hungry or angry or cold or in pain, if there are environmental factors that might be impacting you, lights, noises, smells, there's so many reasons a resident might be distressed. And there are so many ways to address their distress that don't include these medications. You can ask for alternatives. Ask whether the drug has a black box warning, what the side effects might be, and if they believe that the benefits do outweigh the risks. And also, this is very important, but ask what the plan is for monitoring the use of the medication and weaning your loved one off of it. You can and should always ask questions, even during COVID, maybe especially during COVID. No one should ever be given a medication without their informed consent, and everyone has the right to the person-centered care they deserve. And I just wanna take one minute to mention that Consumer Voice has a lot of resources surrounding this issue. We have a campaign in partnership with the AARP Foundation Avoiding Drugs as Chemical Restraints. You can visit our website for resources on this issue. We have a pocket guide with a lot of the questions that I just raised a moment ago and with the names of medications that you should be aware of. We have fact sheets and we also have a podcast series pursuing quality long-term care where we dig into different aspects of what quality care is and how you can achieve it. And now I'm gonna switch things back to Luria again, um, who's gonna discuss the right to voice grievances and talk about what the grievance process looks like.
1: Thanks, Jocelyn. Residents have the right to raise concerns or to file grievances about issues that they may be experiencing um, with their care, with their quality of life, if their rights are being violated. Um, The residents could have concerns about any number of issues, um, timeliness of care that's being provided, how they're being treated, the food that they're receiving, the care that they're supposed to get but aren't, and more. The right to file a grievance exists in the facility where the resident um, should not should feel comfortable filing the grievance without retaliation from the facility or without the fear of retaliation from the facility and the facility must work to resolve complaints promptly that are filed by the residents every nursing home is required to have a grievance policy that explains its process for looking into and resolving complaints and the policy has to be provided to residents upon request. Any grievance can be filed in writing, it can be filed orally or anonymously. A specific staff person, has to be identified and designated to be responsible for handling complaints. In the regulations, that's called a grievance official. The facility may or may not call it that person, but there needs to be someone who is designated and to whom the residents are directed to file their complaints or grievances with. The residents have to be given that person's contact information. Um, That includes their name, the address of the facility, or their their business address, their email, and their business phone number. Designated person or grievance official is intended to be responsible for overseeing everything related to the complaint from start to finish, receiving it, tracking it, investigating, making sure that the information in it is kept confidential, and finally providing a written decision to the residents residents should be told how long the process should take to investigate their grievance or to look into their grievance. The regulations do talk about prompt efforts to resolve a complaint in a reasonable time frame. I know that's a little bit loose. So when you think about it, we think like what what is a reasonable time in order for them to do an investigation and report back Some of the timeframes that we've been seeing um, referred to include maybe a week to 10 days or 10 days to two weeks in order to get a response to um, your grievance. And at the conclusion of any investigation, the resident must be given a written decision regarding his or her grievance that includes information like what was done to investigate the complaint that was filed, the findings um, of the investigation, whether or not the complaint or the grievance was confirmed, whether they could validate the issue that the resident raised for them, and then any action that the facility has taken or will take to correct the problem. The whole issue is that there needs to be response to any concerns that are raised by the resident, um, and they haven't they are entitled to getting a response back and to know what is going to happen with any complaint that's been filed. This section of the rules actually got beefed up recently a couple of years ago when the regulations were revised because too often complaints were filed, grievances were filed with the facility, and they would go into what seemed like a black hole where people would never know whatever happened to them. They would never hear back and nothing ever changed. So this really puts some onus on the nursing home to, um, actively investigate and take action with respect to concerns that the resident is having and to report back to them on what they're gonna do in order to make changes and ensure that the problem gets corrected to the best of their ability. So the grievance process that I just mentioned looks at internal um, within the facility, filing of complaints and where the facility has responsibility for responding and addressing the complaint. But if a resident has concerns, they can also file complaints outside of the facility. And Jocelyn is gonna talk about that.
2: Thanks. Um, So I wanna first just mention that residents have the right to always access their long-term care ombudsman program. Every state's required to have an ombudsman program under the Federal Older Americans Act. Ombudsmen advocate for residents. They provide support. They help address concerns. A consumer voice when a resident or a family member calls us with an issue specific to their facility, we almost always connect them with their local ombudsman program to help them advocate. Something that's important to note and great for residents is that the ombudsman work from the resident's perspective. When they receive a complaint, they ask the resident what it is they wanna have happen. This is true even when the ombudsman receives a complaint from someone else. So if a staff member, for instance, turns to the ombudsman program, the ombudsman's job is still to resolve that complaint from the res- to the resident's satisfaction even when what the resident wants might be different than what the staff member who originally voiced the complaint wants. When I talk to family members or residents, which I do almost every day, I always emphasize that your long-term care ombudsman program, they're your best advocates. They can work directly with you to make change at your facility. And also we wanted people to be aware that the Long-Term Care Ombudsman Program is also a great source of information and resources. They can help you set up a resident council or a family council. They can come in and help with trainings. They're a great resource. And in a few minutes, Lori's actually gonna talk more about resident and family councils. I also wanted to just mention that residents and families and staff can also always file complaints with their state survey agency. So if a resident is being denied their rights, they can and should file a complaint to their state survey agency who should then investigate that complaint this didn't change during COVID. I know it was a difficult process for a lot of people during COVID, but it did not change. And we know there are complaints that are being investigated now. We know there are complaints around visitation that are being investigated now. Um, And, you know, just to reiterate what I mentioned at the beginning of this presentation, when we talked to CMS about people who were saying that, you know, there weren't enough staff to facilitate visitation, Cms said file that complaint with your state survey agency. If you feel your rights are being violated, that is always a step you can and should take. Um, And with that, I'm going to turn things back to Lori to talk about what your rights look, um, look like around transfer and discharge and what protections you have.
1: Yeah, thanks, Jocelyn. Just to reinforce one point that you just made with respect to filing complaints um, with the Ombudsman program and with the licensing agency, it's important to do that when, as you mentioned, um, when when people are having um, issues. With respect to filing with the survey agency, this is one of the things that, um, you know, I think to reinforce what you just said about CMS is even encouraging people to file the complaints, because when we advocate and we talk a lot with CMS and we share the stories that we hear from residents and families and ombudsmen with CMS. And one of the things we often hear back is, did you file the complaint with the survey agency and what did they do about it? What was the survey agency's response? And so it is really critical as we look to improve the implementation of policies, the implementation of um, oversight, we need the implementation of enforcement actions, um, we need to ensure that the survey agencies are engaged um, and are aware of the problems that are going on in facilities so uh, don't hesitate to file those complaints. So just wanted to make that additional plug because it just triggered for me it's one of those important things that we hear a lot when we talk to CMS. That's true. So. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about transfer and discharge rights um, for a minute. Um, It's important. We, We felt it was important to talk about these because it's, the transfer and discharge um, rights that residents have are really critical in order to um, protect them from involuntary transfer or discharge from the facility, um, inappropriate discharge or transfer from the facility. And actually, complaints about transfer and discharge have been the number one complaint filed with ombudsman programs for more than seven years now. It's an area that there's been a lot of advocacy around and um, that people really know, need to know and understand their rights so that they are not inappropriately discharged from a facility. Far too often, people are told that they have to leave. They're not given proper notice or any information about their rights, but there are some pretty significant rights that are included in federal rules. the facility has quite a number of responsibilities that they have to follow before they transfer or discharge a resident out of a nursing home. Once you've been admitted into the nursing home, you have the right to stay there and not be transferred or discharged unless one of six reasons occurs. There's only six permissible reasons for transfer or discharge. One is that the facility can't meet the resident's needs. The second is that the resident has improved and doesn't need nursing home care any longer. The resident is endangering the safety of other people, or the fourth reason is that the resident is endangering the health of other people. If the resident refuses to pay their bill after being notified about non-payment, um, and they are not paying their bill, there—that's uh, one of the reasons for discharge. Um, and if the facility is closing, um, that's another uh, permissible reason for discharge. But those are the only six reasons, and there are there are specific procedural protections that have to be followed regardless of which of those reasons are are listed Um, specifically with respect to notice requirements um, that residents receive the facility has to give proper notice um, that includes a number of different protections the notice has to be in writing usually it has to be 30 days prior to the date of the proposed transfer or discharge it has to tell, say where the resident is being transferred or discharged to, what's the location to which they're going. It has to indicate that the resident has the right to appeal the discharge um, in front of an administrative law judge and how to do that, who they can contact um, in order to file an appeal. It also has to give information about the long-term care ombudsman program that you can contact for assistance. A common reason for discharge is that the facility is unable to meet the needs of the residents. That's one we hear all the time. If a facility is attempting to transfer a discharge a resident for this reason, there, is, there are some additional requirements and specific documentation that has to occur before the person can be discharged for that reason. For example, the nursing home has to document in the resident's record what specific needs the resident has that it cannot meet. It also has to talk about what it is done to attempt to meet those needs that has to be documented in the chart. And what are the services of the receiving location, the place to which the resident is being transferred or discharged that will meet those specific needs that the original nursing home can no longer meet. Because one of the things that we would see is that nursing home A, Happy Hills nursing home, who is just licensed as a regular nursing home says they can no longer meet a particular person's needs. And when you look to where they're going to transfer or discharge a person, it would be to nursing home B that's licensed and purportedly provides the same type and level of service as the original nursing home. It doesn't make sense that they would be moving the person to a place that has a similar or the um, the same level of services or certifications. So they need to talk about what services the receiving location offers that will meet the need. One of the reasons why there are so many protections in place is because there's a real issue with respect to transfer trauma for people that are moved out of nursing homes, particularly those with dementia or cognitive um, impairments. Um, transferring them can cause traumatic events. It could cause depression. It could cause serious decline for those individuals. Um, and so there really are efforts to protect them from being inappropriately discharged. Um, residents you know, certainly also have the right to um, have rights with respect to transfers or moves within the nursing home itself to, for instance, A resident can refuse to be moved to another room within a facility if if that transfer is solely for the convenience of staff. So, for example, if a resident experiences a change in condition and requires potentially additional care, the staff may wish to move that person to another room with other residents who require a similar level of service because it's easier for the staff then to care for residents with similar needs all in one place. But the resident would have the right to stay in their room as long as it's certified in the same way. It doesn't change the payment source, for example, they would have the right to stay in their own room and refuse that transfer. And they may choose to do that because they like living with their roommate, for example, or maybe they're in a private room or there's a reason why they like being in the room um, that they're in. So um, there are a lot of rights that residents do have um, that they can exercise with respect to discharge. If a discharge notice is for non-payment, if the resident is applying for Medicaid you need to know that you can't be discharged if, you are, if you've submitted the paperwork for application for a program like Medicaid or a third-party program like an insurance program where you're just waiting for the approval to come in. They can't discharge you during that process. Um, so that is one thing that people need to be aware of if you're transitioning from private pay to Medicaid or Medicare to Medicaid, for example, in terms of coverage of your nursing home bill. You can't be discharged if you've done the application process and you've been moving 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 forward. It's only if you've done nothing to pay your bill or your resources are not being used to pay your bill that it usually gets people into trouble, but you still have the right to appeal. And if you do receive a transfer, um, a notice for transfer or discharge, there are time constraints here. So take the notice very seriously and contact your long-term care ombudsman program for help. Early on in the pandemic, I just wanted to mention there was a waiver that was um, permitted by CMS uh, of the 30-day advance notice um, of transfer or discharge, but it's only for the purpose of cohorting residents, which means the practice of grouping individuals so that those with COVID might be separated from those without COVID. While technically that waiver still is in effect at this point, um, it should be extremely rare that uh, that this is being um, activated and so really all of your transfer and discharge notices are in effect and if you're not receiving adequate notice, you should be asking for adequate notice and contact your ombudsman for help. Um, Visitation has been a huge issue we've referenced it a couple times already in the presentation. Um, So Jocelyn's going to talk about that and get into the weeds a little bit more with that. So Jocelyn.
2: Thanks. Um So that's right. I mean, I think everyone who is listening today, whether you're a resident or a family member or an advocate or an ombudsman, everyone knows that visitation is one of the rights that has been hugely, hugely impacted by the pandemic. So just to start with, you know, before March 2020, residents had the right to have visitors they wanted when they wanted them, subject to very few limitations, almost no limitations. And we saw once the pandemic started that a visitation ban went into effect through CMS guidance. So not a waiver like Laurie was just talking about with transfer discharge cohorting, this was simply done through guidance that CMS issued. And they issued a full ban at the beginning and then slowly that ban lifted in limited ways as the pandemic went on. Things opened up a little bit in September of 2020 and then quite a bit more in March of 2021. And so, Now we're at the point where CMS has said that facilities should allow indoor visitation at all times for all residents with a few very narrow exceptions. If a resident is unvaccinated and the county positivity rate is over 10% and the vaccination rate in the facility is under 70%. If the resident has a confirmed case of COVID-19, if the resident is in quarantine And then if the facility is shut down because of an outbreak, but this one is actually a little bit more complicated and I'm going to come back to it in a minute. But even with those exceptions, two types of visitation always continue. Compassionate care visitation, which occurs when the resident is experiencing a physical or emotional decline, or if they're experiencing distress, as well as visitation allowed under federal disability rights law. These two types of visitation should always be allowed. We have seen facilities play around with the definition of compassionate care, but it is very clear that these visits are for residents who are experiencing a decline, who need help or support or companionship from their visitors. And when that is the case, regardless of the circumstances in the facility or the COVID rates in the community or the vaccination status of the people involved, those visits need to continue. Also. The guidance says that nursing homes must facilitate in-person visitation unless there is an adequate reason related to clinical necessity or resident safety. They also emphasize that visitation continues to need to be person-centered, which is why we talked about it in reference to care planning earlier, but despite all of that, the guidance does allow facilities, as I'm sure you all know, a lot of discretion. It says that facilities should consider the number of visitors per resident at any one time and consider the total number of visitors in the building at any one time in terms of COVID-19 infection prevention protocols like social distancing. Um, It says that facilities can consider scheduling visits for specific lengths of time to ensure that everyone can have visitors. And it says that if visitors have a roommate, it is preferable not to have visitation in the resident's room if it can be avoided. So the question is now, what does this mean? We're in October of 2021, 19 months after the pandemic started, where are we now? Um, And you know, the reports we talked about at the beginning of the presentation suggested that visitation is happening, but it's limited and it's restricted. We've heard that many of those restrictions got worse over the summer as Delta spread. In fact, something we started hearing a lot this summer was that facilities were shutting down because of positive COVID cases. And We heard in several instances that the positive COVID case was a staff member, not a resident, and often a staff member that was no longer even present at the facility because they were quarantining at home, and still the facility entirely shut down. So the CMS guidance does not appear to allow this, and yet we kept hearing it was happening. And so we finally reached out to CMS to say, you know, can facilities do this? Is this okay? Um, and CMS made it very clear in their response, which you can find on our website, that if the original case was with an employee who is no longer present and there are no additional positive cases, visitation should resume for all residents. Outbreak testing should continue, but visitation could resume. They also confirmed, and this is huge, and we know many facilities that we do not believe have been doing this, but during that outbreak testing, Outdoor visitation is still always permitted, and residents are able, even when they're told to quarantine in their rooms, they're able to leave their rooms during this type of testing for visitation. We wanted to share this with you because it's, it's just been a really common scenario and an easy reason for facilities to shut down visitation entirely right now, but it is not what should be happening the right to visitation absolutely still exists and it is only in these very narrow circumstances that visitation should not be permitted. And so for residents and families struggling with these limitations right now, something we're telling people to do is to look at the guidance and remember that it does not say that facilities can indiscriminately limit your visitation. It says that yes, they can consider the number of people inside the facility at any one time, in terms of how it relates to COVID infection protocol, so in terms of social distancing, it does not say that facilities can arbitrarily limit visitation now to working hours. There's nothing in the guidance that suggests that. And yet we hear that from so many people. And, you know, in terms of these time limits, if there's a resident who has dementia and they're being limited to a 20 or 30 minute visit twice a week, that's not sufficient for them. It's not enough time for them to really adjust to what's happening or even understand their visit. So very likely that visitation is not person-centered and it is violating their right to visitation. That resident is required to have person-centered visitation and should be able to have a care planning meeting to ensure that. This is where we kind of see where a lot of these different rights come together. If you as a family member or a resident need help advocating for your visitation, This is where you reach out to your long-term care ombudsman program, and if the facility continues to violate the residents' rights, this is where you file a complaint with the state survey agency. This is why it's really important to understand what rights residents do have. And so, on the topic of what residents have and what they should be able to do, I'm going to throw this back to Lori to talk about residents' rights to Mm self-determination.
1: Thanks, Jocelyn. Self-determination is one of those really important rights also, and it, it provides the ability to make choices, to have control over our lives. It's something that's extremely important to all of us, and it's no less important to those that are living in nursing homes. We actually hear often from former nursing home residents who've moved out of facilities and back into community settings. And one of the things they all say and talk about is they're glad not to have to live every minute of every day on somebody else's schedule, on the facility schedule, on the staff schedule, or on somebody else's, that they have the freedom and control over their own lives and their own days. And that's how it should be in nursing homes, that people should have control over their schedules, about how they want to spend their time. Um, and they should be able to control that um, as much as they can. There are actually very good and strong residents' rights about being able to choose in nursing homes. Even if we don't always see it being implemented, it's something that we need to continue to be pushing and advocating for. So residents have rights that pertain to self-determination and choice. They have the right to choose activities, schedules, health care, providers that are consistent with their interests assessments and plan of care they can choose what pharmacy they use or what doctor provides care for them they can choose when they get up in the morning Um, if they want to sleep until mid-morning and go outside for a walk in the afternoon and visit with friends later in the day they should be able to do that and the facility should do whatever it can to make that happen for them why is it important well, just think about all of us and how different we are and how we all have different routines and we like to live our lives in different ways. When you're visiting with someone else or visiting family, for example, or friends, and you're, or you're in a situation where your normal daily routine is disrupted, it might be okay for a few days, but after a while you really start missing your own schedule and the way you want to be Um, scheduling and planning out your days and, and how you're living your life. And remember that this is the resident's home. This is a place where he or she should feel most comfortable, she should feel most supported, and be able to um, exercise her rights and arrange her schedule and live their life um, the best way that they want to as works for them. Residents have the right to choose aspects of life in a facility that are significant to them and the right to receive reasonable accommodation of their needs and preferences in residing and receiving services in the nursing home. So when you take these rights together, the intent is that instead of life in the facility being organized and operated around the facility schedule, what works best for them and for for the staff, it should be the other way around. They should be looking at what are the residents needs and interests and how do they want to be um, arranging their day and what are issues that are important to them and the facility should be adapting as best it can to the resident and the staff should be doing that as well doesn't mean that they the staff have to go like literally down the hall one by one just because it's convenient for them to get everybody up before seven o'clock in the morning if somebody wants to sleep in later go back to that person later and help them get up and move on to the people who want to get up earlier in the day for example Residents also have the right to interact with members of the community and participate in community activities, both inside and outside the facility, and the right to participate in social, religious, and community activities, again, both inside and outside of the facility. These rights are about supporting the facility, supporting and accommodating as much as possible a resident's needs and choices for how they spend their time. And really, you know, if a resident indicates that they want to engage with uh, members of their family, go out to community events, Um, attend different events in different parts of the community, or even encourage people to come into the facility and help do activities or do programming, Um, the facility should be working with the residents to help them either leave and go out to community events or bring um, the community into the nursing home so that the residents can engage with them to the greatest extent possible. That happens in a lot of different places where facilities will host, you know, transportation to different games or, or different parts of town or shopping trips or whatever it is that the, the resident wants to do, or they will bring in artists or members of the community or have groups inside of the nursing home so that residents can be engaged and involved with that. The bottom line is that residents should be able to live their life as much as possible the way they always lived it and continue to spend their days doing the things that they enjoy and that are important to them. One resident who we talk to a lot almost every single day leaves her nursing home and goes out into the community, she's going to the library, she's going shopping, she's going to the farmer's market. She's engaging with people in her community in a variety of different ways. And that's the way it should be up and up to the time of the pandemic. I would say that we were really making progress towards uh, making these rights a reality in a lot of nursing homes. Um, too many are still too institutionalized and Um, organized around the uh, convenience of staff and the ease of staff and the way they work. And certainly, you know, we need to understand that staff, um, you know, have limited time in terms of what they're doing, but really the focus is on what the residents' needs are and how they can best promote and engage them in ensuring that their needs are met and that they're able to have choice and self-determination. During the pandemic, it really has seemed that a lot of the rights and the progress that we had made went backwards um, because people seem to have their rights just taken away from them people not being allowed to leave their rooms for example leave the facility residents are telling us that they feel like they're in prison a lot of the times and as jocelyn had actually mentioned earlier we understand that infection prevention and control measures had to be taken for a large part of the last year but we are really concerned about the impact that that's had on residents um, that there weren't more efforts to engage them ensure that their rights were being ret- protected and that they were able to exercise them in a way that was safe for everyone involved and we are also concerned that even though many of the restrictions that we've seen in the last um, year and a half have Led up in a lot of different areas. Many communities, it seems like um, conditions are almost back to normal in the way people are coming and going. Um, but that many residents are still being confined to their rooms, not able to leave the facility, not able to eat with their friends in the dining room or participate in group activities. And that's just not what we should be seeing right now. Um, so, you know, we really need to be focused on how we can ensure that residents can be engaged and and can be advocating. One of the things that certainly um, residents and families can do advocating for themselves individually is one thing, um, contacting the ombudsman program is another, um, or the survey agency, as Jocelyn had mentioned, Um, but they are also are resident and family councils that we would highly encourage residents and families to participate in. Residents have the right to form and participate in a resident group or council and to have their family members participate in a family council or a family group. These groups come together often to share information, have educational programming, and importantly to discuss and work to find solutions for problems or concerns that residents and families may raise. Raising concerns in a council meeting can help you, a resident or a family member, determine whether there are others that might be dealing with the same situation or the same issue, and also to help you not feel alone in what you're experiencing um, and to give you some support. Also, the collective voice of a council can be helpful in getting a resolution to problems that can be more widespread in a facility. So there are some rights with respect to the resident and the family councils that exist in federal requirements. One is that the nursing home has to provide a private space for the council to meet and to assign a staff person that's approved by both the facility and the council to assist them and to respond to written requests. The resident council and the family council separately have the right to control and manage their meetings and staff and visitors are to attend only with the permission of the group the facility is also required to support the councils by making residents and families aware of upcoming council meetings if there are grievances or recommendations that are given to the facility from the resident or family council the facility has to act promptly to respond to them that includes concerning proposed policy or operational decisions that might affect resident care and life in the facility. The requirement to act upon the grievance or recommendations doesn't necessarily mean that the facility has to carry out all of the council's requests, but it does need to consider them and to show and justify its action or inaction based on those requests. It's really important that families and residents get involved and engaged in these councils. We know that there have been different uh, methods for family and for family councils and resident councils to be working during the pandemic. While many were not able to meet in in person for quite a long time because of facilities needing to close their doors to outside visitors, many of them met over Zoom. Um, A number of ombudsman programs have engaged family councils virtually. Um, So contact your facility or your ombudsman program for help if you need more information about resident or family councils. Um, With that, we've really come to the end of the rights that we're going to be talking about today. Um, I'm going to turn it over to Jocelyn, who's going to talk about a way that residents can be engaged and raise their voices um, on policy and program issues.
2: Thanks. Um, So one of the things we really work to do at Consumer Voice, as I hope a lot of you already know, is ensure that resident voices are heard. We want to make sure that residents and families are empowered to advocate on their own behalves and we really wanna elevate resident voices. So next week on Thursday, we're actually gonna be recording a resident dialogue that's going to be highlighted at our annual conference in a few weeks. We're going to be asking residents to share what their experiences, what their experiences have been, the changes they wanna see, at the facility level, at the policy level, and what they think organizations like Consumer Voice should be focused on. It's an opportunity for residents to have a large platform to share their experiences. So if you are a resident who's listening, or if you're a family member or a friend or an ombudsman who knows a resident who might be interested in joining this dialogue, um, please send me an email. My email, it's also gonna be in the comment section of this presentation on Facebook. And if you're a resident or if you know a resident who might not be interested in that large of a platform, who might not feel comfortable being part of our annual conference, um, but would still be interested in getting involved in other ways, please still contact me. We have a consumer advisory council where we meet and talk with residents several times a year virtually to get their input. We also have a lot of other opportunities for engagement. We have other types of dialogues and listening sessions. So we really encourage you to reach out to us if you're interested in making your voice heard at a larger level. Um, And with that, I'm gonna turn things back to Lori to wrap things up.
1: Thanks so much, Jocelyn. So I know we talked about a lot of different things today. We have quite a bit more information and resources about residence rights on our website, including a fact sheet of residence rights that's been translated into more than 10 languages. Um, Leading up to and during Residence Rights Month, we gather and post information on our website um, that includes resources about activities, promotional materials, um, and other things about rights that you can incorporate into the work that you're doing or into your facilities. We also host a Residence Voice Challenge where we invite residents to share with us their own interpretations of the theme that's been picked for that year. And residents share artwork with us, drawings, paintings, collages, they share poems, essays, and videos. It's really a great collection. And we have all of them posted on our website under residents' rights. And you can see that on the slider on the main page. Um, of our website right now. Um, all of the entries not only are on the website, but many of them are also being highlighted on social media and in eblast. So uh, we would encourage you to take a look at the great things that have been submitted to us from residents around the country. I think also importantly, as we close today, we recognize that not everyone has been um, actually experiencing and having their rights fulfilled the way we've talked about. Um, and, and we know that that's a real problem. But we wanted to make sure that you were aware of the rights that you are entitled to as a resident of, the, of a long-term care facility, um, and it's something that we all need to continue to be pushing for and advocating for to ensure that every resident is actually receiving the care and services that they are entitled to, that they need and deserve, and that their rights are being respected and protected. We know we didn't get to any questions today. We're at the top of our hour, so we're gonna have to close for today, but thanks so much for joining us on Facebook Live this afternoon. We look forward to engaging with you more. Um, Check out our website at www.theconsumervoice.org for more information about what we talked about today and a recording of this program will be put up on our website as well as on Facebook Live and on YouTube. So thanks so much for joining us. Have a good rest of the afternoon.
0: Pursuing Quality Long-Term Care is a program of the Avoiding Drugs as Chemical Restraints Consumer Education Campaign, a partnership of the National Consumer Voice for Quality Long-Term Care and AARP Foundation. Make sure to visit our website, theconsumervoice.org slash pursuingquality, where you can share your story with us, subscribe to the podcast, and find more information about the campaign. If you enjoy the podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next episode. Oh, oh,